somewhat. Um, we have a PDF to share. The book is very full and I pulled particular quotes um, to frame our discussion in several photographs, but you are getting just a snippet of the book, which is a couple of hundred pages long and very, very full. Um, we will leave plenty of time for questions and answers because I think there is a lot to discuss around what we're going to talk about. Um, so let me begin and introduce Michelle Beaugre, um, a professor emeritus at Parsons School of Design, a documentary photographer, a copyright lawyer, and an author of multiple books on teaching the photographic process and understanding the impact and the agency of documentary images to create social change. And I've had the occasion to meet Michelle. Um, we wondered why it took so long because we have a million people <laughs> in, con in connection as well as uh, a lot of the same passions. And I commend her on reconsidering this moving target, which is documentary photography, especially as it relates to our ever-changing global and digital world. She's assisted us by starting, as a professor would, with defining every aspect. So we're beginning with actually looking at the use of the word photography. Does it describe our current output, which is so often not an object, but a projection on a screen? And I think it's really bold, and uh, we have a a, a, a love for Stephen Mays in common. I call him our futurist. And uh, Stephen wrote the introduction to this book and literally raises that question like, do we need another word for photography? And he points out that digital lacks the materiality of the photo. And he importantly talks about how we've conflated storytelling with factual reporting. And um, Michelle interviewed and researched extensively, and she spoke to 14 contemporary photographers. I know she spoke to more, but she highlighted the definitions by 14 current documentary photographers, and they're all different. So I really commend her. She is looking at a moving target that's literally moving um, under our feet. For, um, um, could I you need to ask a couple of quick clarifying questions, then opportunities for anyone in the project team to raise Deb, up any can risks you help and me issues. To... Then we have an opportunity okay. to approve any documentation that needs approval. Um, Someone is needed to be muted. Can you check your mute, please? I think we're there. Are we? Yep. Okay, great. Um, so Michelle, I appreciate one of your definitions about photography and you say photos show us what we must see. I've used the definition of photography as a consequential tool. And I like that you made the point of a photo being a connection of humanity, that it's actually a parallel between a moment and metaphor. Um, I'm noting Susan Mizalis because she is known for the basically heralding the importance of documentary as testimony. And we're dealing with the elasticity of our medium. So it is hard to define as innovation is constantly changing it. So we're about to talk about something where we actually don't have a static definition of photography or documentary. And if there's anything I wanna say is get used to it 
because I don't think we should. They're both dynamic right now. And I think it is a very long discussion um, and an ongoing one. So I'm really excited to unpack it. Um, lastly, I'll say thank you, Michelle, the way you broke it down and gave us some ways to frame the discussion because it is challenging and it does have historical meaning. So how do we, how do we move from one understanding as it actually changes in our time. So you've given us four areas um, or four sections to look at, um, memory, evidence, witness, and narrative. So I'm gonna move to the, um, um, our PDF, um, and I am gonna ask you some questions, but I want to just give you the floor. I'm framing it with a tough one at the beginning because I think it will be part of our whole discussion. And that is, would you agree that most current definitions of documentary photography stress the importance of context, the importance of the need to provide meaning? I do, Siv, I also have to say, I suddenly, I've lost your screen. And so if there's something, I don't know why uh, that I need to be looking at. Or do I, have um, I don't know. That's interesting. I don't either. I'm looking at the book and we put together a PDF. So I can yes, tell I, you I, the- I just had that up, but now all of a sudden it's gone away. Well, that's our second Zoom adventure of the day. And I'm sorry about that. Mm -hmm. Actually, I can ask in real time, either Deb or Matilda, uh, especially Matilda, if you're on, to email Michelle the PDF. Yeah, and Michelle. It's in our... it right now. Yeah, okay, great. Thanks, Matilda. I... I'm only seeing the cover as well. That's fine. Yes, everyone else will see the cover. I haven't moved that. But Michelle, for her to be able to go along with us, needs to see which image we're looking at. Thanks, wanna... Matilda. Give me one. I'm going to pull it up on my other computer so I can look at it. I don't have to screen on that one. I'm guessing okay. that what's happening is that you're seeing if you if you click on people's face. Yeah, I'm on my phone. So if you click on people's face, then you see their face. But then there's also a little um, square where you can touch the top of the book and then you should be able to see the PDF. I everything was up and then all of a sudden it all went away. Oh, I have. Mm. Okay, now, yes, I see that now. It's all just a tiny little on a tiny little screen. Actually, all that's going to be there, Michelle, is um, some quotes, and I'll read them, and some images, and I think you'll know the images, and I also have the book page they're on, so we can reference you if need be for something I bigger. I don't know how to make this bigger. I don't know what happened, actually. That's okay, in the sense that I don't think you need to see it bigger. We can, okay. we can walk you through it, and as I said, I've literally got the page of where they are in the book. Um, okay, so let me rephrase that question, um, which is, um, <laughs> if you would agree that most current definitions of documentary photography stress the importance of context, the need to provide meaning. And it's why I brought up Susan Mazalis at the beginning because she heralds that context, context, context. Do you believe that the majority of photographers shooting documentary today are doing that work with that frame? 
Well, I think that the majority of people that I interviewed are concerned about how easy it is for images shared online to lose context. So mm -hmm. a, to retain the kind of and sense of accountability that they feel to the photograph, the subject or the story they're telling, they are concerned that the photographs be seen in context. And when you strip metadata and things are shared and reshared in a hundred times and you know a day, you can lose the context of the story. So I think they are uh, concerned that things can lose context. Um, and then it's important to try to keep them in context because the stories are telling are complicated and nuanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that maybe a, um, <laughs> I think you're working on two books already, but I'll give you a third, which is basically <laughs> when you're done with those, maybe there could be one about how to control for context in a global media age. Well, or global digital media age. Most of the photographers know that they can't control it completely. Mm -hmm. and they do as the best they can embedding captions and embedding information in the images themselves. So at least it's like, unless of course the metadata is stripped out or someone's looking at it on an iPhone. Um, they try, but they get they they know that they can't control it the way that it was controlled in a print space. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's actually um, something to be taught, right, mm -hmm. that in this age, you need to be aware that there's going to be less and less ability to do that. So how are you going to work around that or work with that? Um, great. There was something I came across in my research, and I really appreciated it. I'm just going to share that it was someone outlining five senses of a journalist, and I thought it really spoke to how a photographer would also see. It's witnessing, seeing, listening, sharing, and thinking. Um, I really appreciate, I'm looking here at the second page of the table of contents to just show people how you take each chapter to take a piece of reconsidering and then looking at history, memory, um, witness, evidence, and narrative. Um, hang on. I want to advance. Um, I really appreciate this is the quote from Stephen that's in the intro. It's time to raise our eyes beyond the craft and to define ourselves instead by what we have to say. I think that gets echoed often throughout your book. Um, and I think, again, you're brave in basically trying to frame something and keep it open at the same time. Like not many people would open with an introduction by someone who's basically questioning two of the words in the title of your book. That's true enough. So yeah, yeah. Um, you write about um, that the reading of a photo always involves mediation and transformation. And you quoted Paul Lowe, who refers to a photo as a performative space where the viewer projects their imagination on the image. Um, so you've got such an interesting perspective because you are a photographer and you are an academic. So you're doing it and you're thinking about it. Um, I'm just gonna put out these two quotes before we jump into photographs. Photography never lies. 
or rather it can lie as to the meaning of the thing, but never to its existence from Roland Barthes. And documentary photography is principally based on capturing and not constructing a world. And you start with the history. Um, and I think this is interesting. I put these two images together, an obviously historical one by Curtis and a more current one by Daniela Zalkman. So maybe we could look at history. And if you want to speak about artifice versus authenticity, which comes out in this chapter. Well, the reason that I started with history is I think, um, let me uh, loop back. One of the things that Stephen and I disagree about is that we need a new word to describe photography. What we agree on is that photography is fundamentally changed in a digital world because the idea that, that the image is fixed in time and space, which is the thing that always gave it power historically is no longer true in a digital world. So I expand the definition of documentary to actually include the ways that documentary photographers are working today. And that's why I chose Daniel Zaltzman's image for the cover. Um, there's a degree of, there can be a degree of construction, there can be a degree of poetry, there, it can be lyrical, but the one thing that I think still underscores um, all documentary photography is this idea that there is a connection to the reality of the moment or the truth of the moment, and we can parse the many layers of truth, but that the photographers are, are changing how they're telling that story because language changes. And as uh, Shahid al-Alam said, you know, the language of Shakespeare is not the language we speak today. Why do we insist that the photographic language can't change or shouldn't change? So authenticity is still underscoring all of documentary photography, even if it seems to be more constructed or multi-layered like Daniela's um, uh, double exposures are, but she didn't actually do that in Photoshop, she did it in camera. So both of those images are, in a sense, authentic. Um, it's just that she's put them together. Um, mm -hmm. Can you explain how that happened? Because she she made some correlations that made her put these two things together. Yeah, I, I, and if I, I have to say, I'm doing this from memory, but um, she was doing a story on, uh, on native uh, uh, peoples in, um, First Nation people actually, what she calls them, in Canada. And she was, just doing a story on addiction and and she yes. did this project and she realized her pictures were ex seemed exploitive and not and they didn't tell the story the more that she explored she discovered the this terrible history of and we also did in the united states of sending native uh first nations children to board, boarding schools where they were stripped of language of culture often and almost always both physically and sexually abused and that the, the, these uh, First Nations people that she was photographing, the trauma and the memory of that experience was so profound. It was one of the underlying reasons, structural reasons for things like addiction. She thought, the, I can't, how her question to herself as a photographer was, how do I show present day, but also the trauma of memory? And so she did a portrait of people and then she went back to a place uh, that represented some of their trauma, either the boarding school itself or something they remembered. And she made a photograph of a double exposure, 
laying it on top of um, the portrait is a way of showing how memory is both present and past. Like we're living here, but we're remembering things in the past. And how, how do you like put that in one? How, how do you put time in one photograph? Essentially, I think is mm -hmm. what you do. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's how that whole, uh, that whole series uh, um, came to be. Actually, it's interesting because it's also how to put truth in one photograph because that's the real story. Um, so interesting. You um, quoted Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said, a photo is a mirror with a memory, which you asked the question, and I think this is central to what we're talking about. It's basically whose mirror and whose reflection. And whose memory. Michelle, mm -hmm. could I just interrupt for one moment? Um, we've gotten some feedback that your voice is not coming through. Um, okay. Is that better? Only. Um, if you have a, if you have your your headset, maybe you could try that. I can try my. I have earbuds, but uh, yeah, I don't think they're connected to my computer. How about if I just move a little closer? Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Me, was... That's okay. Is that better? How about I just speak up? Is that better? Yes, I think that okay, is. I'm also going to turn up a little bit background noise. One of the things that I didn't say in our housekeeping is that Deb is monitoring the chat. So thank you, Deb. Okay, so how is that? Is, is that, that? is that clearer? I'll just speak up. Yes, I think for me that sounds better. And uh, people let me know if, if we need to do anything for Otherwise, you. I'll figure out headphones. It's just a new computer and I have to find the way to connect these. It doesn't matter. If this is good, That's we can fine. go with this. Yes, people are Great. saying fine. Yes. Okay. You actually also made me think if, um, if you're familiar or read uh, Sally Mann's book, Hold Still, she actually brings forth the idea that photography is replacing our memory, which I think is really interesting to think about. Um, do you think there's one other thing about memory and the fact that we're talking a little bit about truth is this idea that um, viewers can mistrust the media, but they still believe in the photograph. Do you hold that to be true? Well, there's been some interesting studies in the United States. They did some studies where they were questioning jurors and jurors still believe a photograph more than they believe the actual testimony from a person. So this idea that in spite of the fact that we academics and sometimes photographers talk all the time about- Yeah, that sent the scans, did you see them? Oh yeah, yeah, I downloaded them. Um, this, despite the fact that we photographers always talk about how you know people don't trust the image, people still do trust images. The average viewer still believes that the photograph is true. They don't think about the layers of multiplicity and the layers of mediation and the, how easy it is to manipulate a dig digital image. They look at a photograph and they think it's true. So when they did these studies in this court, if they showed photographs, the people were more likely to convict the person than if a, than if the, a witness simply described the same thing. So that, it's this belief that the photograph still remains to be something that they can trust, even though they can't actually, but they do. So you're, you're really talking about something that we would now term media literacy, that we, we, we have so much more media, so much more we're speaking in image, yet our actual ability to read it is not up to speed. <laughs> it's not thinking along the lines of, has it been manipulated? Where is it coming from? where is its context? 
um, that's a, a interesting part. Um, we're still looking at truth and authenticity. I just pulled out some of the most amazing images that you are able to to highlight to bring this up and and also to to speak to the current use of documentary because on the left you're looking at something that you could term a portrait right there's no other identifying information and is a portrait considered documentary i uh, see that's uh, like i I had this wonderful conversation with uh, Jean-Francois Leroy from, you know, who does uh, Visa Pour la Marche. He does not think a portrait is a documentary. I think today a portrait is documentary. I mean, you accept the fact that a portrait is somewhat set up because it's a portrait. But if you allow that some documentary work can be set up or at least somewhat constructed, then you can easily accept that a portrait is documentary. So it really gets back to your definition of what can be documentary today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which is also, I think it's been Lowey's picture on the right in terms of the idea yeah. of construction uh, or what is typically deemed documentary. He's, he's definitely inserting his view into what we're looking at. And he's definitely laying, layering metaphor. Yeah, can you tell me what page that's on, Seb? Sure, um, 60, 48 is the first one and Ben's is on 68. 68. Yeah, yeah, I know the one on 48. I just wanna see what, it's too small on my screen. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, this was also <clears throat> one of the reasons I put this picture or selected this picture is I was talking about how iPhone or smartphone photography has become yet another tool that documentary photographers use and how when it was first, I think the first time cover with a, a smartphone got so much criticism from photojournalists, particularly because, you know, that can't like the, the distrust that that phones were going to become a tool that photojournalists would use. And so I had talked about Michael Christopher Brown's work and then this photograph that Ben did. Um, in uh, Libya, which I thought was, uh, he calls it I Libya. So yeah, it's not so much that it's constructed, it's just that it's a, it's, it's a different way of looking at the image because he's looking through his phone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I actually curated a show with 19 members of Seven Photo Agency in 2011, and it was called I See the eyes of seven in the hands of hipstomatic. And that literally came out of a discussion over the impact of the iPhone and the immediacy of being able to utilize it. And comically, there was a competition. I mean, you've got amazing photojournalists in seven and they have their annual meeting and they were all playing with hipstomatic and they were finding that they were getting a lot of traction there. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically um, uh, in competition with what would be their straight photojournalistic pieces. So it was really fun to explore that. And we had a gallery talk with Stephen Mays talking about this literally 10 years ago. And um, um, Peter DeCampo came with his very first photograph with an iPhone, which was taken in an elevator going up to get his press pass. And he's like, here, I can take a picture. I don't have a press pass for it. And 
he also went on because of that very intersection of the iPhone. In our gallery talk, he juxtaposed the images that he took because he was on assignment for an NGO and the ones he took with his iPhone and they were drastically different. And he was saying, we're not seeing the full picture. And that was literally the etiology of everyday Africa, which became everyday projects, which is allowing people to see Africa and Africans daily in a much wider view than what was necessarily seen coming through the other work. Um, let me move over. So moving on to um, memory. Well, we talked about that a little bit. Let's see, Why the, while the photograph may be fixed, memory is not, the meaning is fluid. Um, and I think that comes into where um, your Oliver Wendell Holmes quote comes in and how, how dynamic photography is. Um, it was before when it was a more fixed material object and now it's got just more layers. Um, did you want to speak, the, the work I'm looking at is um, Paloma Basu's work, yep. um, which is really interesting in terms of what she was able to do about creating change. And actually this isn't from, um, a, well, it all, a ritual of exile moved into um, the blood rituals, moved into installation and film and um, ended up creating a change in Nepalese policy um, in 2017. Um, the backstory is that she was following the ritual of separating women when they were bleeding and that she was witness to a 16 year old with her infant child literally going into shock. And she stepped out of her role as a photojournalist to say, if I don't do something, she is going to die. And she was able to wire to the States, get an ambulance and the woman did live. And that started this uh, ability to move um, the laws. Not that culture moves slower, the laws are on the books, but just like female mutilation, it doesn't mean it has stopped. Um, so these are really amazing images and I was not familiar with the project on the right. And if you wanna speak to that just a little, um, page 95. Um, yeah, I wanna say something just though uh, before, because you're using yep. the word photojournalist and documentary photographer kind of interchangeably, I don't because I put photojournalism as a subset of documentary. This is certainly mm -hmm. not, not necessarily, um, some people put documentary as a subset of photojournalism, but the reason I separate them out is because while I am willing to expand the definition of documentary, I'm not as willing to expand the definition of a of photojournalism because that's news-based. And I think there still needs to be this covenant of, of this agreement between the viewer and the photograph that it hasn't been manipulated, it hasn't been staged, it hasn't been constructed. Um, so I make it clear in the book that when my idea of expanded does not necessarily apply to photojournalism. So I just want to say that because- um, Thank it, you. No, I, that's it, so important. Thank you very much. I mean, that's language. And it makes me think of um, the Neiman Fellowship, which is allowing more 
photo-based storytellers to be in what is a typically journalistic space. Um, so thank you. We need to be um, more aware of that, and I need to be more aware of that. Yeah, easy but the to profession, do. The profession doesn't agree, like necessarily, what the definition, what the definition is, or where it sits in a hierarchy. That's just what I do because I. I mean, I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and my very first job was working as a photojournalist at the Miami News. So I have a very strong sense of what the the rules of around journalism, which I don't think should expand to the degree that the rules around documentary can and should. So, um, but that's make it back great. To that's problem. a great. That's a great quote. <laughs> <laughs> really, truly, right? That that's, I mean, that's a, a parameter to work within to be able to, to discuss all those nuances. So that does lead us to how um, the photograph is using some construction on the right, but is still so, considered documentary. Yeah, so this project on the right was a project done by um, two um, see, friends from uh, for, and, and photographers, Fabrice Najari and uh, uh, Sedgwick, um, who goes by the, the nom de plume of Variel. And they were uh, walking in the Waken Valley or the Waken Valley in Afghanistan, where people really had never they'd barely seen white people, they'd certainly never seen photographs. And they had um, an interpreter who they discovered actually didn't speak the language he needed to speak. So they were, they had a Polaroid, or I guess the impossible project at the time, camera, and they would take photographs as a way of introducing themselves to the people so that they could get these other um, projects. When the people got this photograph of themselves, which they'd never actually seen themselves, the fascinating thing was that they they would show that, but hide their, but sometimes hide their face. So the reason I love this picture on the top is that the woman is still sort of covered uh, with a with a veil or not a full burqa, but she's uncomfortable showing her face to these male photographers, but she's showing this photograph of herself, not kind of understanding the relationship between the photograph and, and the reality. What um, Fabrice did with these is he, he, he desaturated the actual photograph and made it black and white, but left the color, the Polaroid or the Impossible Project in color, kind of shifting this idea of what's memory and what's, and what's past. So he's putting the, the 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 real photograph sort of as memory because that's what we think about black and white. It's a construct that filmmakers use. But the, the what li what lives in the present is this this prize that they have. And everyone when they saw the photographs wanted to have their photograph taken, and they would display them in all different ways. So, but it's like this idea that she's not doesn't quite get that she's displaying herself in the photograph, but she's hiding herself when she's having the, her photograph taken with the photograph. So um, they did a lot of other things from this project, but this whole series that he did with how people um, showed and displayed their photograph of themselves, which they had never actually ever seen a photograph mm -hmm. of themselves. It's hard for us to understand that as Westerns who see like way more photographs of ourselves than we'd ever like to see. If you've never seen your photograph, um, so yeah. Think about that in the time of selfies. <laughs> We've yeah. seen way too many photographs of ourselves. Well, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. I love the way the guy sticks it in his hat. Like it's I here know. I am and here I am. You know, it's like. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, I, project. I gave a, another example of Tomas's um, selection from uh, Traces of Exile, which is really interesting. Uh, that's on page one, um, 105, ah, because sure. he's actually utilizing other technology, right? He's taking a social media platform and intersecting it with context. So if you want to give a little bit about this project, a little background. I think he's also dealing with how photographs can lie as they seem to be telling the truth. So mm -hmm. the photographs that photojournalists or document photographers would take of the refugees were, you know, shocking people falling, you know, falling out of boats or scrambling to the, to the shore, you know, poverty, uh, tents, but what the refugees, the pictures they were taking of themselves as soon as they landed in what for them was a far safer space than what they had fled from were happy. And so what he was trying to do with this project was kind of make us think about how we read photographs and whether the photographs are actually telling the complexity of the story. Because while it's true that the, the image of the tents that show, you know, what a terrible situation is that's not untrue but nor is it actually true so he went and found he he went on found social media feeds and then he actually contacted everybody and said may i use your selfie of that's on your social media feed and if they said no he didn't use them um then he would go back to the place that they had actually taken their selfie and find a similar using geo geotags and gps coordinates like a picture of that place so he's just trying to say think about like what story is not being told even as the story is being told and that gets again back to viewer and 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 uh, literacy or visual literacy so he put the their actual images and when you see this in an ex exhibition, it's actually a video. So they kind of float into the screen and then flow out, float out of the screen. Um, but it, it's also the, which I'm sorry, speaks to the, the idea, the, the, the great de degree of accountability that photographers feel today for what they do. So he didn't use any picture that unless he could contact them via Instagram or whatever platform was and say, this is what I'm doing, this project. Do you mind if I use this? Mm -hmm. Well, which is interesting, you're making me think of two things It echoes back to Peter DeCampo and Everyday Africa. Um, and I actually curated a show for um, Machep Nabardalek, who is in um, Seven Photograph and was here for the Neiman Fellowship. So we did a show together at Harvard that was called Refugee Crisis. And literally during the refugee crisis, he went to see it for himself and talked about how photographers would go for the shot, which was the drama, which was the angst, which was the horror. And he said all these other things were happening. And his whole time at Neiman was really sussing out, are we helping, are we not helping? where's our role? Um, and then you're also making me think of Debbie Cornwall and the work that she's done on Guantanamo and the accountability of literally finding permission and then finding detainees who are released and then collaborating with them. And if there's ever an expansion on documentary, her two books are, <laughs> and those projects. Um, 
and Misha on the right, um, he does amazing work with memory. Um, let me see what page that's on, 114. Uh, this is Misha Friedman's work. Uh, and I just, I, I had the, um, uh, the ability, I, I, I know Misha, but also listening to him talk about this work. Um, he has really grappled with issues that are so difficult to visualize. Um, and then how he utilizes photography to do so, it's, it's very poetic. Yeah, well, he's doing this, 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 in a sense, something oddly similar to what Daniela was doing. So how is he, he's trying to show a memory of a past, a Russian past that doesn't exist. I mean, I'm sorry, he's trying to show, a he's trying to, to, to show a past that doesn't exist with much um, artifact in the present. So it's really just a memory because they, you know, like uh, the gulags and, and all the buildings have been destroyed. And so he's, he's, photographing in the present, but trying to reference a past that is in the memory, even though it's not in the present day. And so the way he photographed this with the panoramas and the black and white and um, in places that where the gulags were, but they're not there now. Um, but he, you know, he just uses, I think, lyricism, visual lyricism to sort of reflect that that we know that something is going on in this picture, even if we don't fully understand because we're not Russian, it's a present and then there's a picture that's on the tree. It's kind of like, you can get a sense that it's about memory. You might not know what without reading the caption and that's where context matters. But you, you have a sense that this is not a, a specifically just a literal picture either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he also, um he works with that negative space for thinking about what isn't there. He, he took the photographs of um, people's albums where photographs were taken out of albums that could have been used as evidence. And what was really amazing to hear was that he learned of his own family's experience with Gulag that he had no idea of until he was doing this project. Yeah. Um, really uh, powerful work. I guess that's, I guess I would say um, to do this work, you have to be prepared to be changed, <laughs> right? Your, 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 the work is profound. So this is the second uh, page of, um, cause it was a double page spread for um, Misha's work on memory, oops, entry. Um, and what that sparked is the picture on the right is not of, um, not in the book, um, but really sparked my memory. And it was of a recent um, seven photo webinar called Anarchy in America. Mm -hmm. And it was for, um, one, two, three, yeah, four, um, uh, members of seven covering the insurrection. And Ashley Gilberton took this photograph uh, January 6th on the left in the Capitol, and he had taken the picture on the right in Iraq in 2003 when they, uh, the military was in um, uh, Saddam Hussein's headquarters. And he, when he was taking the current photograph, was accessing his own memory. And in the webinar, they put these two together. Um, and one other thing I will um, mention is he made a point 
in the photograph on the left, as he talks about how he makes his images and what he's thinking about, he wanted that camera, that surveillance camera that is in the staircase, um, just in terms of how things are very different from uh, the days of the bust <laughs> and when other people walked the Capitol and now. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting um, example of memory. So, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I no, just no go. Things, one of the things, the, the reason that I actually def chose the chapter headings that I chose is that the idea of the, the things that we always, that used to always give um, photographs power were there, the idea that they were fixed in time and space and you could count on them for memory, for evidence, for witness, and the, and for narrative for that matter. And the idea is, and this is the this is how Stephen starts the book, is that with you know digital, can we still believe in those things? And so I, I keep going back and forth in the chapters that this is these are still the the categories that give uh, documentary photography its power, but to what degree is it different when it's a digital image, which is just bits and bytes, as opposed and not fixed in any time or space, as opposed to an image fixed in time and space. Memory kind of, I mean, we layer, we think that memory is accurate, but it isn't. In fact, a photograph is actually more accurate than memory in a sense, because we layer stories onto our memory. We have different kinds of memory and we, we tend to um, rewrite yeah. our memories, you know? Um, so yeah, so, so Misha's work, I think is just, it, it looks like what memory is, which is a bit, it's, it's like a dream, you know, it's never, it's so you get a snippet of this or an idea of that. Um, anyway, yes, I just wanted to- Yeah, it's interesting that. to think about that, the neuro, neurological uh, recreation of memory. We think it's so fixed and actually it changes right along with us. Exactly. <laughs> um, so the, the whole idea of evidence. I mean, that was such a place of power for the photograph. Um, and here, Tim Hetherington speaks of event-based news images are the primary vocabulary by which humanity interprets itself. And um, very tragically, Tim Hetherington is no longer with us taking photographs, uh, killed covering um, crisis. Um, and the idea is that you weave that, the action of photographs for us to interpret ourselves and to understand ourselves and who are we echoes in every chapter. And we'll get to the end because it really comes in very powerfully through Mary Calvert's work. So um, I think that this is, uh, this is a, a um, this is a power that has been seeped into photography and where does it lead us today? So the photograph I'm referencing now, it's on 125. Mm -hmm. Sebastio Tomada's work um, where I'll, I'm gonna read the caption because I don't know how well you can read it from there. I, this, I see, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, 
the image of the um, housewife with three children, 72 years old, standing inside a secret command outpost in the city of Aleppo and says, my house was destroyed by two bombs. I moved to Aleppo with my family. I choose to pick up a weapon and fight the regime. And it echoes the use of portraiture uh, where we looked at that before uh, in terms of as a document. And then the other image, on 150, is it 154, 134? Mm -hmm. Yeah. By Marcus Bleedsdale. Mm -hmm. So, did you want me to talk about these two images, or? Yeah, if you well, if you want, if or yeah. if there's others that speak to this idea of how we use, where is the power of evidence? Well, what I found, shifting. What I what I what I liked about Sebastiano's images, and of course, I'm willing to accept that uh, portraiture's documentary is these were. This is the only all female uh, uh, fighting force that fights along that fought alongside the Free Syrian Army with which he was embedded or found himself embedded because he was uh, photographing and they got attacked and then he ended up with the Free Syrian Army. He was hesitant at first to make these because he didn't want them to be misconstrued. But then he decided that he would make these really clear, simple, white background, oddly though references Avedon, which to me has interesting aesthetic tones and just let them be who they are. He's not trying to impose anything on them, but he decided that they were important to actually um, to photograph because of who they were and how they were fighting with the Free Syrian Army. But he he was a, he understood that he might get criticized for doing that because he's a white guy. People would read these differently, um, so his captions were very the captions were very important to him, you know, uh, and this project. Um, I mean, and Marcus's picture is, of course, just, I mean, first of all, I think he's just an extraordinary photographer, but this is, um, you know, he, uh, uh, the aftermath, again, of war and conflict, and this is, it's entitled, it's titled After the Secular Seleka, I guess, um, and she's mourning for her sister who was shot. Um, this is the kind of, though, of, uh, it goes back to Tim Hetherington's quote. We need to know about the, the, the horror that man can do to man if we're ever going to, like, not have it. And when I say that, that photographs show us what we must see, even if we don't want to, these are the kinds of pictures. Because it's easy, if you're not in an area of conflict, to not understand the human uh, tragedy that happens after the fact, actually. Um, so yeah, I think that's just a, it's also just a great use of edges. But Marcus has an ability to capture human emotion in his photographs and this picture does that. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Just One of the things yeah. that I read in this particular chapter that you point out is what is shown in the image versus what is shown by the image. And uh, I think that. Yeah, and, I, and in this, this picture actually tells us that, I mean, even if we don't even necessarily have to know what the conflict was to know that 
the actual image itself is an image of personal grief of losing uh, a loved one and the, and the grief that the 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 young woman in the red dress is feeling is so palpable the, what the story it tells about the story is who was killed and how quickly they were killed and that there was a you know a massacre they were shot close to close to their home people were killed five people were killed overnight so there's there's a bigger story that he's telling us or that he's he's letting us know but the image is both personal but also broad so it's both specific and global and some most photographs have those layers of it's both a we both connect to it personally but it's a, often always about something else not just what's in the picture mm -hmm. and this one writes that quite well mm -hmm. i love that picture mm -hmm. and uh again uh photographs that are not necessarily this is on 138 um mm. not yeah. not easy um but necessary actually essential yeah i mean this is, was a really interesting um project that uh kai wiedenhofer did uh on gaza and sort of the whole idea of like how do you how do you photograph destruction or the impact it has on people's lives and he photographed uh it's called the book of destruction in gaza one year after the 2009 war and this was just this was a woman not just a woman this was a woman whose legs had been amputated because the building that she was in had been bombed and she was damaged but what i find so extraordinary about this picture is that it's the colors i mean she's and i She's wearing purple. Purple is the color of scars. She's sitting in a purple chair. So these, there's all these amazing aesthetic connections to mm -hmm. what the aftermath again of life is like after something happens. Um, it's beautiful, but it's also really kind of shocking if you look at the scars on her knees. I mean, there's the things happening in this picture just visually and aesthetically, I think are quite extraordinary. Um, is that not a missile? Yeah. To the left of the chair. Yeah. And I, he clearly propped that and he might've, for all I know, cause I, I did not ask him because when I talked to him, I hadn't picked the pictures, whether he picked the chair on purpose to, to, to match the scars. I don't know that, but, um, yeah, this is like, this is what my life is, but yet she's living in the present and she, she's looking at us calmly, like life is going on for her. There's, you know, so there's both the, the, the global story, like what caused this and all the politics that we never can quite uh, understand, but yet her life is continuing. Like this is her life in the present. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's, she seems and it's also one of those pictures that is either just a portrait or it can be viewed as uh, a political statement so depending upon how you this is why i say we all we bring our own things to the picture so if i'm very pro israel i might look at this picture as an anti-israeli you know political statement or mm -hmm. i'm or it's just a photograph a document of this woman and her life and where she is now um so, you know, you could show this picture and people, depending upon their political point of view, if they have a strong one, are gonna come are gonna come back from this picture with very different points of view about it and very, very different interpretations of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, he says he's just making a record. I'm not sure I that that's quite true, but that's what he says. I'm just photographing. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but I think that's in, there's politics inherent in this, depending upon how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, I was looking at this quote, the image is driving everything. It's never been a better time to use images to explore ideas and to reflect on how our images contribute to the discourse. Um, one of the things I learned in your book that I was rather shocked at because I've been thinking about the um, what I described with everyday Africa and the idea that NGOs uh, send people to to portray human crisis and use those images to actually fundraise to to do humanitarian efforts to erase them. However, the discourse and what's happening along with that is also this reinforcing of particular viewpoints that can be either political, social, cultural. But one of the points that you made that amazed me is how much money in the United States annually NGOs garner from this very if you, sorry to use the word, but propaganda campaign. So I was going to say, and I don't know that we have time because I was going to say, let's ask the audience, like how much do we think an annual amount from the United States comes through to humanitarian organizations? Just to give you a hint, don't stop at the millions and get really high in the billions it's $300 billion. I was astounded by that. Well, you know, and I, that's the power of images. I mean, we always talk about, you know, image fatigue or do, do we see too many, you know, terrible pictures, but the fact is people still respond. They respond generally in the first week though. That's the other interesting statistic is there's a definite drop off, but the immediate response to, um, a crisis, a humanitarian crisis, when photographs are used is uh, from the United States is quite high. Mm -hmm. I was, that was a really interesting statistic. Yeah. Here I pulled another image out uh, from the seven uh, webinar um, because this is Ron Haviv's image of uh, the January 6th in Washington. And it's, I put it with his quote, trust I'm providing a fair representation of reality, not an objective one. Um, and uh, this, just to note that this conversation, these four photographers are all schooled and have vast experience in conflict photography and literally spoke of the fear that they had in, in this last episode that they covered, and especially Christopher Morris, um, who said that he was basically uh, interacting negatively or being treated negatively by the National Guard, who was basically saying, you are the enemy of the people. And he said, this is in my country. Like I've covered it elsewhere, but so it was a very, very powerful, but I thought it spoke to this idea of the, the representation and the reality, right? Where you are in your views, where you are in your experience. Um, but you know, that idea that Ron said is I'm giving you a fair representation, not an objective one is echoed by most of the documentary photographers that I, you know, this idea that documentary has to be true is really 
imposed on documentary photography. We photographers always know that, that photographs are never true. I mean, I point the camera this direction, not that direction. I frame something, you know, this way, not that way. There's the world is happening outside of my photographic frame. But the photographers that are telling the stories are doing their very best to 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 like be true to what's what's actually happening, even though they're saying this is not objective. Or as I heard Marcus once say at a human rights conference, I'm not telling the truth. I'm telling a truth. A truth. So mm -hmm. Ron echoes that, and that's a very common. Um, it's a very common thought and, and this sort of criticism of documentaries based on a construct that was never true. And that is that photographs were true um, or objective. Yeah, it's also interesting how long we can hold on to particular uh, definitions. Um, so now we turn to witness. Um, I loved that quote, content is king. Um, uh, and this idea of, um, providing testimony. Um, and I think that this echoes back to our very first point, which is about context and providing meaning. Yeah, I mean, the, some of the way that I framed it is that the photograph is evidence and the photographer is witness. Um, and as witness, the photograph is becomes both evidence and testimony. I mean, mm -hmm. Brent's comment that content was king is particularly when he's talking about it doesn't, you know, people get too hung up on um, uh, on technology or technique and, and what it really matters is the story you're telling and the degree to which you're being uh, true to the to, to the the essential truth of the story that you're telling. And he's like, it's the photograph, it's what's in the photograph that matters. Um, but yeah. And he certainly has done amazing stories. I mean, his uh, everything that he does, including that all that amazing work from the the uh, killing of those conservation um, mm -hmm. that that is absolutely evidence and becomes what and be, I mean, he's the witness and what he's producing is some kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that happened for Ron Haviv and his photography too, as evidence in Bosnia, in the in the trials. Um, I think one of the interesting things of the other photograph, uh, which is on 175, um, Antonio Bolfo's photograph of um, in Syria, displaced persons, um, it speaks to um, the work from uh, Gaza and, and, and also Marcus's work where it is a document and it is an aesthetically beautiful photograph a reality, um, which I feel, and maybe this is a question, but I feel documentary is moving in that direction because we are so much more uh, visually sophisticated. Um, so our language is changing from our Shakespearean language, um, but how, how, how the language of documentary has been changing. Well, I mean, the language is, I mean, there, there, there's always been this dialogue or this criticism. Is it, can a photograph be too beautiful or should you make a beautiful photograph of a, of a terrible situation? But the fact is that photography is aesthetic, it's an aesthetic medium. I've never, I'm on the side of no, you can't, it's perfectly fine to make a, 
aesthetically pleasing photograph of something that is not that is not a pleasing situation because it makes me look at the picture longer. But I think that the the aesthetic that we're moving towards is pictures that aren't aesthetically uh, beautiful, nor are they particularly well composed. And that's that's this like the, the new trend, the postmodern or neo postmodern, and whatever what whatever we possibly want to use to describe what we're doing now, is um, images are not some of the ideas of composition and 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 how we took photographs is not a particularly interest to young young documentary photographers they're they're mm -hmm. it's a different language mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like a poem without meter and a poem with meter or something you know language mm -hmm. changes breaking the rules yeah exactly mm -hmm. uh more um examples of witness. Um, I think that was so interesting, the, the piece on the left by Tim Hetherington, who was embedded and um, chose to do so many portraits of sleeping um, servicemen. And uh, actually, Stephen Mays wrote about that in Spot, because um, these are heartbreaking images on many, many levels. Uh, and that's Ed Cash's work on the right. Again, with a deeper story, Ed really goes into um, connecting the dots. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what Tim Hetherington did is the thing that only a great uh, photographer does is that he he looked away from the obvious pictures, you know, carnage, war, and he looked at the the actual the soldier themselves, and and he. And when you think about how young the soldiers are that get over there, when you photograph someone sleeping, it is the most vulnerable um, time, like say that we ever are. And when you look at his whole body of these sleeping soldiers, I mean, these kids are just kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is even more powerful than showing war or bullets or things like that, if it, what is actually going on or what we were actually asking we the United States of these soldiers that we sent over there. Um, in some ways, it's just brilliant. It's just turning your camera around and looking at something different, not what everyone else is looking at. And it, it just one of the one of the many th projects that show how brilliant Tim Hetherington was. Um, mm -hmm. And again, it goes back to your definition. It's showing us what we must see. That we could never see. In other words, looking at those pictures, if you look at them as a body of work and you see how young the soldiers are, and then it, you think about what we're asking these soldiers to do, and then we're ignoring them when they, I mean, it, it, it sparks this entire after story, this complex thing of vets and brain trauma and the lack of funding for the VA and all those things from this like single, seemingly simple photograph, but anything mm -hmm. but simple. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then Ed's whole project on aging, which um, he did for quite a while. Again, these, these th things that most of us don't see, not the least of which is how we handle aging prisoners. You know, we put old people away so we don't have to look at them. And Ed's project is making us look at how we as a society are handling <clears throat> aging in America, whether it's nursing homes or, you know, uh, prisoners. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. but my, but this is much more traditional mm-hmm. reportage. And what I love it, what I tried to do in the book, and what I sort of my definition is, we can expand the definition of documentary, but that doesn't mean we have to discard the past. So there was a tendency to say, well, no traditional reportage, or that's boring. It's not boring. It's 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 traditional. So you can you can have an expansive definition. Your tent can, in other words, rather than shrink your tent expand your tent, include all kinds of work. And when traditional narrative is appropriate, photographers use it. When you wanna be more, you wanna expand or do some other kind of project, you can do that too. So I I wanted to be very clear that we need not to discard traditional reportage um, Mm -hmm. to include new and interesting uh, different ways of, of doing projects. You're reminding me of my mother saying, don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. Exactly. <laughs> and there's Brent's uh, famous shot. I mean, his work is consequential in in, in affecting conservation. Oh, yeah. And then um, Mary's work here. Uh, oh, yeah. This leads me to ask you if you think there is a difference in the way that women document women photographers do they document differently you know i think every photographer photographs based on who they are what they where they've been what they've seen what their background is so you'd say yes women photograph differently but then so do different men photograph differently am i where am i from what is my socioeconomic background um but i think it's also true that mary's interest in this topic of sexual assault in the military was something that perhaps a male photographer would not have thought of or or been so persistent to 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 get the access to do it because the idea of sexual assault is something that happens more to women than to men although she her second part of this project was to actually photograph uh, men who'd been sexually assaulted in the military much harder project to get access to because if women don't want to talk men really don't want to talk about it so i don't think the actual photograph itself i think that any great documentary photographer in the same scene would have taken this same photograph because it's well composed, it's extraordinarily powerful, but I'm not sure they would have told the story. They would have told Mm -hmm. a different story. Nor nor do I I think that they would have had the access that she had. Correct. Like I I know when I was working um, on the women's issue and doing a lot of thinking and writing about through a woman's lens, uh, one of the things was our lack we as women had lack of access for so many years that we innovated different ways to uh, introduce stories and also tended to do longer term, more intimate. Um, But I, I was struck by Mary's work because of the digging, and I don't think this is gender specific, but that she took the, started with military sexual abuse and linked it because as she learned, it led to this overwhelming homelessness of women veterans. Like they make up a ridiculous portion of our homeless population and correlating those things, I think is so, so important. It reminded me of um, Stephanie Sinclair's work where she was photographing these young women that emulated, set themselves on fire. And then she's like, 
why is this happening? And it was the whole practice of wedding eight-year-olds to 49-year-old men. And it started the entire project Too Young to Wed, which then moved into its own NGO and attempting to, to change that practice. So um, well, I access. Think, yeah, what's interesting about Mary's project though is how she got started. She was, you know, she uh, uh, wasn't working. I think she'd lost her job at the paper and she was, mm -hmm. someone said there's a hearing going on and a hearing on, on sexual assault in the military. Yes. And she went and there was like, it was an empty chamber. There were two, two women testifying, and I think two senators in the room. And the thought that nobody was even interested in this hearing on something is what sparked her to start doing the research that led to discovering that, you know, the prevalence of homelessness because the women, if they reported, they were dishonorably discharged. And if you're dishonorably discharged, you get no benefits. So they were homeless because they had no benefits because they were kicked out of the military for daring to challenge a superior officer who had sexually assaulted them. Um, mm -hmm. But it was just that, that moment of seeing that and then thinking about it and then, you know, continuing to, as she said once, you know, I, she said, well, you ask 100 people, you'll finally get one person to say yes, because getting access was really hard. Um, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that backstory is incredible. And how much research she did. I love this quote of hers. She says, bear witness, people, bear witness, because it is not about them. It's about us as the society. And I think that could just be amplified, magnified for so much of what we're looking at. Okay, the last section, narrative. Um, I love this too. Narrative, in other words, is a basic human strategy for coming to terms with time, process, and change. Mm. And this work is on 206. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yep. Well, this was a, a part particip the, the the photographs are is a participatory project done by uh, this wonderful photojournalist named Brendan Bannon. Um, and he had he would run like photographic workshops in refugee camps and then he gave the children cameras to kind of uh, record their experience. And that's why the title is like, do you see what I see? Um, mm. I just love, I mean, I think this photograph on the top is just a beautiful picture. It was taken by, you know, a young girl, no, a, a young boy, Mohammed Naeem. Um, it was in, in the kids said it was in, uh, indeed the perfect moment for that picture. So I was talking about the another part of the idea of expanded documentary are these participatory projects where photographers are working with people who would normally be the subjects of the pictures and saying you you take the pictures you show us your world rather than us showing you your world. Um, yeah. Who's telling whose story. Exactly. Who is telling whose story. And this was amazing, uh, Tomas's drone project, which I learned a lot about in your book. Um, and another very, very thoughtful 
photographer, I try to figure out what I want to say, and then I choose the best photographic tool or approach to say it. There are so many technologies that allow new ways of seeing stories that would be difficult to tell as traditional narratives. And if you want to just speak to the image on the, yeah. the left, it's such an amazing shot, suspect behavior. Well, you know what he was interested in, he started to do some research on, uh, he, he, he wanted to see like what photographs were we seeing from the drone strikes that the Obama administration was uh, undertaking. And when he like Googled like drone images or something like that, all he got were uh, product shots that the drone manufacturers made of the drones. And he realized that there was nothing coming out of, the United States was not showing us what they were, um, what we were, um, uh, the scenes that, that that were triggering drone strikes in um, mm -hmm. in Iraq. And so he wanted to show these normal, basic, everyday kind of activities that were the, the kinds of things that were triggering drone strikes. And so he bought a drone and taught himself how to use it and did this whole project all over the United States. And this one just happens to be, you know, people doing yoga in a park but as he said you know it looks like people could be people praying and people praying in mass would be something that might trigger a drone strike in the united states but what i think is fascinating about tomas is so he does this and then he did the project with where he was geotagging and pulling in social media and then his he did this project called lines and lineages um where he was one found the the order the ancestors of original Mexicans who lived in what was Mexico before we annexed it and is now Texas. And he went back with a, he found an old eight by 10 camera and taught himself how to use it and made these pictures that looked as if in fact they had been taken in a historic time. So he, when he really, when he says, I use whatever tool is, uh, it seems appropriate. He's not, he's not making that, I mean, he's not exaggerating. So he'll go from mm -hmm. drones to, you know, 18th century, 19th century camera technology, if he thinks that that's going to enable him to tell the story better. Um, but that I'd love project, to... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that project was funded in part by Catchlight, and there's a lot of information. Yeah. Um, yeah. But go but ahead. I, what were you going to say? I, just, and I, I, wanna... I just love his idea. Again, it's like one of the things that students always ask is like, you know, like, how do people come up with stories? So he comes up with it just, I wonder what it looks like what are the pictures the United States is putting out with drones and there aren't any and he goes from that to doing this so it's like or Mary's you know walking into a you know an empty room hearing essentially and then mm -hmm. deciding to spend the next two years photographing it's how um it's the kind of it's the process by which great photographers come up with the projects that they that they you know do and then when they're done they look easy but what what got them there was not easy at all Absolutely. And that observation and yeah, yes, refining your thought and and letting that evolve into the project that it does. I, I talk often about being in conversation with your work, um, letting it lead you. I just have a few more slides and I want to make sure we have time for some questions. Of course, we could do a whole webinar on Leah Abril's work and the history of misogyny. Um, noted for how complex and comprehensive uh, she attacks a subject. So under the history 
of misogyny. She's doing her projects slash books in chapters. And the first chapter is on abortion. Um, and she does such a matrix of information and consideration and truth and evidence and narrative all in one piece. You know, I, again, it, it's you say to someone like, okay, I, how do I photograph abortion? Like what, it is a non-visual subject, generally speaking. And Laya's approach was to do the stories about and, and the history of why perhaps maybe abortion is even necessary. And she does it, you know, a still life of old abortion tools, these, these little black and white photographs, uh, some of which are somewhat constructed based on the stories that women tell, told her about um, the abortion they had to have. But one story I love about Laya is she wanted, she wanted to get this picture of a sonogram of a Oh God, a very young girl who yes. molested by her father. Mm -hmm. She called the doctor every day for six months before he finally relented to send her the sonogram. Mm -hmm. That's persistence. She just kept calling and finally was like, okay, I will send it to you. And that's just one little picture for this huge installation project that she does. Um, mm -hmm. And then when she shows about I was gonna say, and she, when she shows this work, it's an installation. There's big pictures or small pictures. She does a sculpture made of coat hangers. It's, this is the exhibit she had at Arl. Uh, you know, so she's really mixing art, sculpture, traditional black and white reportage, portraiture, still life, because that's the language she needs to tell her story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how it just goes back to the authenticity and accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, Deb, do you want to allow some people to ask questions? I don't know what's happening in the chat, um, but. Yes, um, I think that we can just ask people to unmute themselves. Unmute? Or I can Great. mute everyone. Perfect. I'm just gonna show the last bits of narrative, um, but I'd love questions from people listening. Are we waiting for a question? I have others if we don't, but. Yes, I don't see, um, I don't really see any questions here. Mm -hmm. So we'll just open it to anyone who wants to um, um, unmute and ask Michelle a question. Um, so this is Ellen. Claudia, mm -hmm. do you want to ask your question? Are you there, Claudia? Because she had one in the chat, which is actually my question, too. Yes, I am. Sorry, I was slow. <laughs> um, so I, I typed my question. So it's basically, um, um, so I, I understand there's a, a very certain difference between the um, photojournalist photography and documentary photography, right? Photojournalist is, is made for media publication. But um, I'm also wondering if there's a distinction, uh, if, you, if you 
could make a distinction, uh, difference between documentary photography and, and fine art photography being that when you produce documentary photography, I mean, we really know that objectivity doesn't exist, right? You, you decide where to position yourself, you decide the frame, what to photograph, so there's no really true object, objectivity to to documentary or to any photograph. Um, anyway, so just that, I just wanted to throw that if you would like to comment a little bit on that. Um, you know, it's very, it's interesting you asked that question because one of the things that I, I when I was trying to figure out like how far do we expand the definition of documentary, it's like, it, there's a point in which it's gonna become too fine art. I'm just not sure exactly where that line is. But I think the one thing that underpins all documentary, even the most expanded of it is an, an essence of, of, of fact or truth, a story you're trying to tell. In other words, in fine art, I can simply make it up. It's, it's, it doesn't have to have any connection to um, something happening in the world. And I think that all documentary does, even if it is as expanded as Laia's is, you know, um, which includes sculpture, she puts that in her installation. So you would look at it, you could, might say, well, that's art, but it's actually a really seriously, deeply researched, authentic story. So that's the definition. That's how I would distinguish it. But I also think it's a tough one because there's a line and you could look, you could get a bunch of us. I, mean, I might think it's still documentary. Someone else might think it's fallen too far into the fine art world. Because we're making this up as Sib said at the very beginning, we're making up these definitions as we go along, you know? So, um, but that, that, that's how I resolved it when I was thinking about this and writing the book. Thank you. I was wondering if you could talk about the um, the photographic meme, um, like with the Bernie Sanders, for example, recently in his mittens, and 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 what your opinions on uh, what your opinions are on um, memes and photographs and memes. Thank you. You know, That's a it's great question. Funny, it's funny you should ask that because I literally was writing about that yesterday for a chapter a new book and I'm thinking about the language of photography and the, the one thing that has happened. So there was a time delay when we used to shoot film. I mean, you take a picture, then the film would get developed days, weeks, sometimes months later, and then you'd print something and then eventually it would get to a viewer. So there was a span of time that the photograph lived in. Today, you shoot the Bernie Sanders mitten picture and before the as soon as it's published, before the day is over, there are hundreds of memes, probably thousands of memes, which take the picture completely out of context. So it has changed the photograph. It has absolutely nothing to do with the origination of that picture. That's what where Stephen, when he talks about why we need a different word today to describe what's happening. Um, it's the way that photographs are distributed is maybe more significant when we think about how photography is changing than even the technology that allows us to do that. 
I mean, I, I did like the uh, the photographer who, uh, who shot the picture said, I'm not, he said, I can't say I'm all that happy about my work being made into memes, but I think he should be delighted his work was made into memes because it, mm-hmm. it, it it's this image that sparked a cultural, um, it, it sparked our cultural identity. It's everything that Bernie Sanders represents and then all the ways that people decided to sort of use the picture to comment on culture. Uh-huh. So, um, but it is a completely different medium. Now the danger is, so it doesn't really matter that Bernie Sanders and Mittens was taking on, was taken out of context, but a photograph about a non-public figure, let's say, where taking that picture out of context can be very uh, disrespectful and exploitive mm-hmm. of the actual subject of the picture. So I think the Sanders with Mittens meme was fine because he's a public figure. He doesn't deserve any privacy, but doing that without any regard to whether you have the right to take a photograph and completely recreate and reconstruct its narrative, I think can be problematic. And that's what worries photo a lot of documentary photographers I, you know, that I talk to. What did you think about it? Whoever asked me the question. Oh, you're you asking me? Oh, yeah. you know, I'm still processing it in a way because, um, yeah, it, 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 it's it, the different memes are showing it in a different light. So there's kind of like all these different perspectives on what it is. So it's kind of multidimensional to me in a way. Yeah. Can I share something if you can see? Is that on camera? <laughs> it's now been knit into uh, right. and photographed. Right, exactly. So. It, it's certainly sparking inspiration on a number of levels. <laughs> but I like, thank you, Michelle, for bringing up that point that, that how that can be used, that appropriation can be used so negatively and so damaging. Um, and also that you bring up the speed at which things happen, which is, which is super challenging. I was laughing as I was writing up my notes um, and thinking of context. I recently had an experience on one of my social media platforms. The backstory is my very dear and old friend has become a grandmother and she was seeing her granddaughter on the second day in the hospital. And I had met her son on his second day in the hospital when she had him. And I wasn't clear about that. I said something like, you know, the circles that come around her. I don't know what I said. I got literally over a hundred congratulations on becoming a grandmother. (laughs) And my son's girlfriend said like, you better check your mother's post. It was a hilarious being caught in the middle. It's like, I am not a grandmother. (laughs) I wasn't talking. And it was really interesting to be in something that took so, it took such a life of its own and it wasn't true. And it wasn't, it was out of context, but it was a cute baby picture. And if I do become a grandmother, I'd certainly be putting out more than one. But, but you know, I, I any other. I was going to say, I think you raise an interesting point is that we all, as viewers, have more of a responsibility today, I think, to actually un- making sure that we've done a, a little bit of research on the backstory of a photograph before we immediately react. And the one thing that memes and social media have done is people react retweet, reshare, whatever photographs, make comments without actually taking time to understand what they're sharing. So, I mean, I think if I were 
designing an, an elementary school curriculum, and I really mean elementary school, I would have visual literacy classes. It is as important as learning how to read words. Yes. Learning how to read images today is as important as learning how to read, how to read words. Um, so photographers have an obligation, but so do viewers. Mm -hmm. and, and as you said, educators, because it is our language. I mean, our kids talk in Snapchat. Mm -hmm. Yes, Leah, go ahead. I, re I realize this is kind of a naive question, but sometimes it feels as if documentaries have to always show something bad. Like, let's say I was in China and I took, I mean, I consider what I took kind of documents of what I saw, but I don't know, they weren't necessarily, they just showed what Chinese life is like today. And I don't, I'm not trying to call myself a social documentarian, but I'm just trying to understand how you see the difference between what people do when they go and they're really trying to accurately record what they see, but it's not a war, it's not someone being raped, it's not, you know, the capital yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems is that we sometimes conflate conflict and war photography with all documentary photography. And, and of course, there's a reason for it. Those photographs are incredibly compelling and demanding and, and we should look at them. But there is so much work being done today that's just everyday life. And let's start with Peter DeCampo's Everyday Africa. Then there's he's got a, there's a ton of everyday projects. There are more photographers looking at um, just like life in America or taking road trips or things like that. But what 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 ten, what what is often published is the most provocative, most most eye grabbing picture. And that often is pictures of conflict. And I think that's a good question. And you know, when I when I do these books and I'm picking photographs, I mean I do find myself drawn to the pictures like Marcus Bleasdale's picture, but then I absolutely publish Edmund Clark's pictures, which are on page 140 and 141 because they're apparently about nothing, but in fact, they're about uh, the deep state. So yeah, we, I think, I guess I'm trying to say, I think there's this much work being done that's not only about things that are bad, but, but it's not published as much, you know, but also photographers who are, see themselves as, as witnesses, there are things that we must show the world so that we stop doing it. So I think that, that we're drawn to those things because of the importance of this, the social or political importance, but um, there's a lot of really good work being done. You know, the, um, oh God, uh, there's a whole project that's very much like the FSA project, um, just documenting America is what it's called. And it's the kind of work you're talking about, Leah, just everyday life in America. It's a website, you should look it up, documenting America. Okay, great, that's, a, that's what I wanted to know about. Thank you. Yeah, it was and that also, um, that made me think of Matt Eck, who I was thinking of in your book. I don't know, did you refer to him at all? I, I'm trying to remember, but I think I, I in think terms I of- did. Matt, yeah, I guess I, I, I talk about Matt all the time in the projects he does, Ohio. Because he, yeah, and yeah. his, it, the yes, the Mississippi and the last one, we did his book, um, on seven cities, okay. which was based in Virginia. And the overall uh, project is called um, The Invisible Yoke. Um, and in terms of uh, documenting America, he, he's, 
he is lyrical in how he is doing that. Um, yeah, I, I so use I just pictures to that. on page 113, and I talk about his project, uh, the project in Ohio. Um, yeah, and I talk about Matt Eichen, yeah. how he did his projects. And yeah, and he does just, he does yes. America, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, this one is, is Matt's. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I, I know I yeah. did, I was pretty sure I did, but I had to double yeah. check. Well, your extensive research, I certainly learned of people I had not been following. So thank you. Thank you for that. And I just since we're over a little bit, if there is one more question, we could entertain that. I think Matthew had a question if you'd like to ask. Um, that me? <laughs> this Matthew? Oh, actually, I had written something uh, before and I thought is, do you consider conflict photography just simply to be its own genre and would be maybe interesting to think about that and you know like isn't the question do people only have to show horrible things but a lot of what we do you know we look at conflict photography and there are a lot of people involved in in going out there and really showing what it's like to be there and uh, I think also speaking to the issue of the women photograph things differently, some of the most amazing conflict photography, I think, that I've seen in the last decade or so have been from the women who were there, who I think they have entree to certain kinds of environments that men simply don't, I think. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I, I suppose conflict photography can be considered its own genre of documentary. I mean, it, it is a specific kind, but I think that just as women have access to things, men have access to things that women don't. Um, and I've never, I mean, I kind of, I cringe at the idea that women see differently, but it's, but it may be true, you know, because it, it sort of isolates and like, what is a woman's, you know, what's, what, what story should women photograph? Well, we should photograph all the stories that men photograph and men should photograph all the stories that we photograph and we're all going to do it differently. So I think it's both mm -hmm. true and not true, you know. Um, but yeah, conflict is probably its own genre. It's certainly it's certainly easy to categorize. I think we have one more question from Mark. Yeah, uh, this is this has been great. Thank you. And this is kind of a kind of a follow on to Matthew's question. So um, I live in the Bay Area. I shoot San Francisco and Oakland quite a bit, and there's a there's a lot of poverty. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like a lot of Hooverville, a lot of Hoovervilles out there again. And actually, I shoot a lot of people's, um, you know, kind of living situations, not always with people in them, but sometimes I do shoot people in them. And um, it's always a little bit, uh, I don't know, it's like an internal battle in my mind is whether I'm, you know, am I being exploitative or is that, but it's a story that it's kind of has to be told, you know, and historically, I know when you look at pictures, like if you look at pictures from, uh, like the civil wars in El Salvador, many, many photographers took pictures of people dying and didn't, didn't step in to help them. Now, some probably did. And those, be, they, those people became famous photographers, right? But it kind of seems like, um, uh, and, they, you know, and then after the fact, it's, it's quoted as like, oh, I did it because I wanted to get the historical, I wanted to get the historical um, uh, feeling of the time. And this is important. I personally kind of think this might be a little ego related, quite frankly. I, I want to be a famous photographer. That's my own mind saying that. So <clears throat> the question is, what's your feeling on that? Taking pictures of people who are really kind of uh, um, kind of down and out. You know, it's an interesting question you ask, because I think, first of all, I'm going to flat out say all photography is exploitive. 
we're photographing something else, we're, we're voyeurs to a certain extent, we're always the other, even if we're photographing our own families, because once you put the camera in front of you. So the question is, how do you, how do you ethically address the idea that, that it is to some extent exploitation? And I think that gets down to your, your commitment to telling the story. You know, I remember, and I cannot remember who it was I was talking to, and I asked the question about, you know, people say you should stop and help. And he said, look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medic. I wouldn't know what to do. You know, I'm a photographer. Like there are doctors and medics around all these pictures that you see and we say, oh, photographers should help. Um, so I, th I think it, when, I when I would talk to my students, it's like, it's your, it's, it's your own, in what, I used to, what I always call your own in internal true north. Like, how are you telling the story? And, and do you, I mean, if, if, you're, if you feel like you're exploiting it and you're just doing it because it's a cool picture, it's probably an exploited photograph. If you're telling the story because there's a, there's a community that, that needs help and you're trying to raise awareness of that, it's probably not an exploited photograph. But um, it's a real, it's, a, it, it's an absolute issue that every photographer has to address for themselves, or at least that's how I, would, that's how I talk to my well, students. There's photographs yeah. I won't take that yeah. someone else might because I, I just can't, won't, you know, that kind of thing. I'll take that out today. Thank huh? you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Terrific. Is there anything you want to say, um, Michelle, about the book or about the process or about documentary or about photography that we haven't? <laughs> I mean, first, I want to say thank you for everyone coming and listening. I'm, it, it's been a, a, an interesting and I like more of a conversation back and forth with you guys because um, I just love documentary photography. And I think that that's why I wrote the book. Um, it to me is still the, the kind of photography that that the world needs that defines our history. Like we, ha we have no history of the Civil War if we don't have Matthew Brady's and Gardner's photographs. I mean, we need documentary photographers and we need them to go the places that none of us want to go. I mean, these pictures like Marcus Bleasdale, when he did some of the stuff of the Lord's Resistance Army in the Congo, they were like, in, they were deep in the Congo for like six weeks. I mean, this is hard. They're hungry, they're cold, it's physical. They're like, I always call them the canary in the minefield, that documentary photographers are, the, are, are, are our eyes and our ears. And so I, I, I just, I, I have enormous respect and I love, I love, you know, the work they do. And I, and I think that um, it's still my favorite, my favorite genre of photography. That's why I keep writing about it. But um, yeah, that's all I have to say. Michelle, there was, um... Another person had asked a question about, would you say the legacy of colonialism still has an impact on how stories are told? Good question. Wow, that's, you know, like that is such an interesting question. I'm reading a book right now by, um, uh, called Decolonizing the Camera. Um, and- I have that too. Yes, I mean, I think the whole idea, I mean, first of all, photography has been a, a tool of colonialism because, it's an expense, and it still is to some extent. It's an it's an expensive, uh, it's an expensive discipline. Even if you're the, I met this wonderful Somalian photographer at Arl, I mean at Perpignan, and okay, so he's he's not as much other as say I would be going in there, but he's still the rich guy in town because he can afford a camera. So I, I don't know how we ever totally decolonize the camera actually until 
there so you know we can give them to everybody. Um, but the history of photography has been the history of, of rich aristocratic white men almost exclusively going to other countries that had been colonized and showing us the history of those countries. And I and I think we I don't think we should discard or discredit those images because they have value, but I think we have to understand the context in which they were taken. And frankly, the context in which we still take them. Um, but boy, I haven't, totally. I haven't finished um, Mark Seeley's Decolonizing the Camera. And I, yeah, I highly recommend anybody read this. It's a little dense at times because it's a PhD, mm -hmm. started as a PhD dissertation, but he raises mm -hmm. really, really, really important questions that every one of us has to ask, which go back to the question of exploitation. Which yeah. actually um, just, we had, um, so Mark Seeley um, uh, curated the show that became African Cosmologies, which is the um, uh, exhibition catalog on the show that he did here in Houston that uh, closed last March. And because it had to close uh, because of the pandemic, they made a, um, a decision that it's going to come back, that it's going to be a a, a, a physical show to see again. But um, one of our book groups covered African cosmologies and really looked at that issue um, of all the African photographers uh, photographing Africa and how we don't have the um, dissemination and distribution of the work that is actually happening. It made me think of when the, um, uh, I think it was Matthew brought up that, uh, when women had access, women literally photographed World War One, um, and we just don't know it. <laughs> um, there are actual images, and women were killed covering Vietnam, and women were were in World War Two and other other like not just United States based uh, places. And it's literally around the distribution uh, and what we see. So we don't see what is actually out there. Another another topic. Well, yeah, we should. That, that's also one quick. That is a really good point because the idea of what is photo history? Photo history is only what was published or shown in galleries, and those were mostly white men photo, uh, publishing and displaying white men. I mean, there's so much work that we're now discovering from China, from India, from Peru, you know, from all over the world that that never made its way into photo history books. So it's always there. We just didn't think that those the photographers were doing things. So it, it new photo history is being written and new books are being written and they're really important to reconsider mm -hmm. the history of photography and the history of, uh, of the world for that matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. That's another passion of mine. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for spending this time and, and, and for writing this book and grappling with these issues. Um, you're like shedding a light on it because we do need to be defining as we're making mm -hmm. to be able, the language is important. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. And I actually have a couple more questions, but I'm not gonna ask them <laughs> another time. <laughs>